Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. Word of God for our meditation this morning is our first lesson, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, as printed in your bulletin and already read. Your fellow sheep of the Good Shepherd's flock. Our psalm today, Psalm 23, and our gospel from John 10, focused us on the Lord as our Good Shepherd. Our reading from 1 Peter pointed us to Christ as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Clearly, there is much to meditate on and celebrate in in what the Bible tells us about this way in which Jesus takes care of us. But our reading today from Acts 2 kind of flips that focus from the shepherd to the sheep. Christ is still at the center of everything. But what we are given here is a picture of how his church lives as his flock. And there is much to learn. This first church, born on the day of Pentecost, serves as both the mother church to and the model for every congregation that has formed ever since. We cannot replicate their situation exactly, even if we wanted to. But the things that defined their life together as Christ's flock are the things that we want to define our life together as well. Let's start with a reminder of who the members of the church in Jerusalem were. In addition to the apostles and the hundred or so other believers who were the the full complement of Christ's followers on earth the day before Pentecost, there were also now the 3,000 or so who joined them after the Holy Spirit's powerful work through Peter's sermon that day, which we looked at the last two Sundays. And all of them came to be part of the church in the same way. They repented of their sins. They put their trust in Jesus and His work, and they were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Everything about their identity in their life, as individuals and as the church, was centered on Christ because it was centered on the means of grace. The word of Jesus was preached and taught to them, inspiring repentance and creating and growing faith. The waters of baptism were joined with that same word to wash away their sins and usher them into the family of God. And and now that they were part of that family, they gathered together around the Lord's table to partake of the supper that He gave to His disciples, to all who follow Him in faith. This is what Luke describes for us. They continued to hold firmly to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. This one verse tells us almost everything we need to know about the life of an ideal church. Those first believers in Jerusalem knew what was what and prioritized what will be prioritized for the sheep of Christ's flock. First and foremost, they held firmly 
to the apostles' teaching. This doesn't just mean that they listened to whatever one of Jesus' disciples happened to have to say to them on any occasion. This means that they were fully committed and devoted to the whole body of teaching that Jesus had passed on to the apostles and that the Holy Spirit had then enabled them to remember and to teach, eventually also to write down in the New Testament. There was no sense whatsoever that the people of the church felt that that they got to pick and choose what to believe or follow and what not to. They recognized it all as the word and will of God. They treasured it however and whenever the apostles preached and taught it. But these believers also held firmly to the fellowship They had no idea of being independent, go-it-alone, my-faith-is-my-own-business Christians. The Lord had brought them together into a family as the body of Christ, and they were not going to let go of that. Instead, they celebrated and nurtured that fellowship, that unity, that sharing, that communion. It's no surprise then that they also held firmly to the celebration of Holy Communion. Now verse 42 does not explicitly say the Lord's Supper, but the context here strongly suggests that the breaking of the bread here is a reference to the sacrament. And since the supper is a powerful giving of God's grace that that not only conveys forgiveness, life, and salvation to the individual, but also unites the body of Christ as they commune together, well, it held a primary place in what the church there committed itself to. And in what all churches that follow their example also commit themselves to. The supper is just too important, too essential to our life together to ever neglect or even undervalue it. Other translations often render the last thing that the church in Jerusalem held firmly to as prayer. But the original Greek word is plural with a definite article, the prayers. And this tells us that their their devotion this fourth item, was not just to the act of praying, but to the occasions and situations in which they prayed together, what we would typically call worship. And since they were still gathering at the temple and and were pretty much all Jews, we we know that this worship would have been of a, a familiar sort, what we would call liturgical worship, following the rites and rituals of the synagogue and temple, incorporating psalms, scripture readings, responses, and, of course, prayers. That's not all that Luke tells us about this church, this first church, this mother and model. He tells us more about it as he goes on. Awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. These new Christians were different, and it was noticed, favorably 
noticed. And we note that, that Luke, tell, Luke tells us that every soul felt awe to see this before he mentions anything about wonders and signs. And what this means is that it was the change in people's lives and character, the way they carried themselves in the world as Christ's followers, that got such positive attention before any miracles that the apostles might have worked. And this means also that the people around us or any other church today can still make a similar impression on the souls around us as the gospel does its work in our hearts and lives, even though we do not have miracle workers like the apostles in our midst. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and property and were distributing the proceeds according to what anyone needed. Many people today, many political and economic theorists who wanted some kind of religious blessing for their systems have pointed to, to this verse and said, aha, see here, here we have a model. This is the important thing to see uh, in the first church, something to guide our behavior by. But this, this was not socialism. What we see here, this is love. This was not an economic or a political system that was imposed on them as a guide for their lives. It was the natural outgrowth of their devotion to each other and of their desire to be like Jesus and imitate God's love for us. A love that is always centered on the other, that is always seeking to serve and to meet the other's need. It shows this practice, which was not, as far as we know, replicated elsewhere where the gospel went, in other churches later. It shows, though, the depth of their commitment to the fellowship that the Holy Spirit had brought them into. Their fellow sheep mattered to them just as they mattered to the shepherd. They looked out for each other. They cared for each other. They helped and served and gave to each other. They loved each other. And so that was their life together. And that's, that's what we see. Day after day, with one mind, they were devoted to meeting in the temple area as they continued to break bread in their homes. They shared their food with glad and sincere hearts as they continued praising God and being viewed favorably by all the people. And then Luke tells us something more. Day after day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We note that it was not anything that they did that grew the church. It was all God's doing. He is the one who added to their number. Just as it was Christ who saved people, not the people saving themselves. Now, is there a promise implicit here? 
that if we do everything the way those first believers in Jerusalem did, that the Lord will add numbers to our congregation the same way? Well, we kind of wish there were such a promise. We'd love it if he did, but no, that is not what we have here. What we do have is evidence. Evidence that the Lord will always honor the preaching of the gospel and the life and witness of his people. We will rejoice when that preaching and witness result in more souls being saved as the Lord moves and as the Lord wills. But we will not despair or find fault with ourselves or with the gospel when it does not. Our responsibility remains being faithful in being Christ's witnesses and in living as his flock. Now, having seen the model of an ideal church in the very first church, some might see the standards set there, this total of one-mind devotion. You might see this all as being hopelessly out of reach, or impossible even. We can't be like them, they say. Things have simply changed too much since then. People, too, have changed. Now that is certainly the easier approach to take here. If you rule out the possibility of something before you ever seriously consider it, well, you save yourself an awful lot of work. And saying, we can't be like them, lets you off the hook for learning from them and following their example. It lets you be lazy. And that is, shall we say, not a good look for those who follow Jesus. So let us examine it more closely. The basis for the we can't argument is the idea that the church in Jerusalem in Acts 2 had advantages that we do not and could not ever hope to have. They were in a kind of, shall we say, honeymoon period when everyone liked them and no one was causing any trouble for them. Christ's apostles were all present there with them and his life and work had an an immediacy among all the people there, since it had all happened right there in places and with people that they knew. Yeah, we don't have any of that. And we have things today that they did not have, like COVID-19 restrictions that are keeping us from gathering together for worship or fellowship. Things like the distractions of cell phones and social media. Things like disunity among God's people and a society that is increasingly at odds with the gospel. And all of these things that are different for us today from what they were for the church back then are all bad excuses. Because what we do have from the Lord is more than enough to live fully and abundantly as the church in Jerusalem lived. Perhaps even more so than they did. We have wealth 
and knowledge and technology that they would never even have dreamed of. And those things give us advantages that they never had. Opportunities to spread the gospel, to, to communicate and to celebrate, to, to serve each other and our neighbors outside the church and more, to meet needs of people thousands of miles away. And we also have more of the Word of God than they did. Because we, we have the entire Bible. And we have access to it 24-7. We do not have to wait for an apostle to come and teach us or wait for him to remember what it was that Jesus said that one time up there on the mountain. We can pick up a copy of the Scriptures whenever we're ready or inspired to hear what our shepherd has to say to us and we can know that it is exactly what he needs to say to us and we need to hear. And even if we did not have those advantages over that first ideal church, we would at the very least still be able to make claim to all the same powerful tools that they had, the means of grace. We have the same gospel in the Word and in the sacraments of baptism and in the Lord's Supper. These same means of grace that, that nurture and enrich and equip us for life as believers and life as the church. We have all the same promises from the same loving God and we have the same good shepherd to guide and care for us. We have everything we need to be the ideal church and to live that way. We have Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have been baptized into God's family. We have all, each, been made saints, washed clean of our sins and made pure in the blood of the Lamb of God. It doesn't matter what challenges or problems that the world might throw at us, what twists and turns our lives might present to us. We know who we are and we know whom we belong to and we have mighty promises from the almighty and everlasting Creator of the universe who loves us. We were, we were like sheep going astray, but now we are Christ's beloved, empowered, blessed flock. And so we will and we are eager to hold firmly to the Bible's teaching and to our fellowship. Hold firmly to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. We will live as they did. We will show compassion to our brothers and sisters and neighbors outside our fellowship. We will meet needs as we are able and as others have them. We will love as we have been loved. Day after day, we are devoted. Day after day, the Lord will bless us.
that is who we are. That is what He does. And that is how we live. Hallelujah. Amen. Please rise. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, in connection with His blood, with which established the eternal testament, may He equip you with every good thing to do His will, as He works in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen.